Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Greetings and welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm Robert Kilpatrick, co-chair of the club's Health and Medicine member-led forum and the chair of this program. I'd like to welcome our speaker, Lori Davies-Adams, who is a good friend, and she's also president and CEO of the Pollinator Partnership in San Francisco, otherwise known as P2. For 19 years, she has led the world's largest nonprofit devoted solely to the health of all pollinators. She has presided over P2's signature initiatives, including the North American Pollinator Protection Campaign, NAPSI, the National Pollinator Week, Eco-Regional Planting Guides, the Be Smart Gardener app, and Monarch Wings Across America. She has also signed agreements with over 11 federal agencies, influencing over 1.5 billion acres of U.S. land to encourage pollinator conservation. So without further ado, welcome, Lori. Thank you. Well, thank you, Robbie, and thank you to the Commonwealth Club for this opportunity to talk to all of you, and I want to thank you all for coming this evening as well. My name is Lori Davies-Adams, and yes, I'm the president and CEO of the Pollinator Partnership, and as Robbie pointed out, we're the world's largest organization dedicated exclusively to pollinator issues. We're headquartered right here in San Francisco, and we are science-based. We're a nonprofit that has staff in San Francisco, Chicago, Washington, D.C., Toronto, Cleveland, and Vancouver. Our signature is that we are a big tent organization. We work with everyone, and we take people where they are, and we move them forward incrementally, creating progress for pollinators. Pollinator Partnership works to engage people in pollinator conservation. For example, our 12-year-old Pollinator Week that Robbie mentioned successfully this year engaged all 50 U.S. governors, and we've done that for the past four years. It's a keystone initiative that unites our country, not too many things unite 50 governors, let's just face that. It unites our continent and our planet in pollinator action. This year we had 380 events in one week in places as far-ranging as Kenya, China, France, Colombia, Canada, the United States, and Mexico. Pollinator Partnership has over 30 such initiatives that focus on common-sense conservation. And for over two decades, Pollinator Partnership has advocated for all pollinators, bees, butterflies, bats, beetles, and all of the 200,000 species that are animal vectors moving pollen within and from flower to flower. Pollinators are critical in the reproduction of up to 95% of all flowering plants on Earth. This pollination results in the production of one in every three bites of human food and in endless ecosystem services such as food and shelter for wildlife, 
erosion control, the production of raw materials, carbon sequestration, and more. My talks usually center around the fact that pollinators, bees and butterflies, so vital to plant reproduction, are in trouble around the world. Honeybee deaths are up. The survey just came out this past month that 38% of all honeybee hives in the United States were lost. This is the largest since the survey began. Bumblebee deaths are up, and the once prevalent rusty patch bumblebee was officially listed as an endangered species. The monarch migrations are under threat. Pollinators are suffering from multiple onslaughts, pests, pathogens, parasites, pesticides, and loss of habitat. Pollinator Partnership is engaged in restoration and conservation, research, outreach and education, (laughs) policy and partnership building in order to conserve and promote pollinators on nearly every landscape. I usually start a presentation by dispelling some misconceptions right off the bat, and I'm going to do that now. First, pollination can happen with wind and water, as well as with animal vectors. The animals are needed to carry the heavier pollens from flower to flower and often move them within the flower. The heavy pollens can't be carried by the water or the wind, but lightweight pollens can, and some plants contribute uh, to our world by having a very sloppy pollination program by pushing masses of pollen that travels through the air. And that's why we have something called the pollen count. That's why allergies are so awful. These windborne pollens are not what we're talking about when we talk about pollination. Second, Some people are so afraid of getting stung by a bee that they believe we might be better off without bees. The facts are that less than 3% of all people are actually allergic to bee stings, and that bees care much more about flowers than they do about people. Third, the flying creatures that disrupt your picnics are not usually bees at all, but yellow jackets And they're not pollinators, they're carnivores, and they're best handled by queen traps you can set out in the spring so they don't establish a nest next to the picnic table. And finally, pollinators don't know that they're pollinating. They're seeking rewards for themselves inside flowers. Nectar to provide carbohydrates and energy, and pollen to provide protein and amino acids. And in the process of securing this food, pollen sticks to the hairs on their bodies, and it's moved from place to place, increasing genetic diversity and assisting with the mechanics of plant reproduction. The flower lures them in with the promise of rewards for themselves. This is similar to my talk tonight. I have lured you in. Uh, And you were promised better health and well-being, but I'm also interested in engaging you in conservation. This talk discusses the connection between pollinators and human health. I'm going to talk about you and your well-being. You are the primary topic tonight, and I hope you'll take something from this talk that is new 
and useful. There are three key elements we're going to talk about that constitute human well-being. Diet, physical activity, and spirit. Each, believe it or not, is affected by pollinators. To get started, I want you to take a moment to think about one aspect of these three elements of well-being, and that's spirit. Spirit is how you feel about your life and what gives meaning to your life. I want you to mentally list the top three things that make your life worth living. Just for this exercise, skip human relationships. (laughs) Your spouse, your parents, your children, your grandchildren, your friends, create a list of three things that make your life worth living that are not people. Got it? So think about that. We'll come back to this, but hold on to that thought. So let's discuss the first aspect of well-being, diet. I've already mentioned that pollinators are vital players in bringing us one in every three bites of food in the Western diet. So what does this mean? Well, if you take away cereals and grains like rice, meat and fish, none of which are animal pollinated, you are left with fruits, vegetables, nuts, oils, and dairy, each of which is influenced by pollinators, one-third of our diet, and arguably the most nutrient-rich part of our diet. These hidden connections with our well-being are vital and help us live better, longer, healthier lives. Many people think that honey is the most important product brought to us by pollinators. Buying locally produced honey contributes to the health of your community by supporting beekeepers and your ecosystem. And as a sweetener, honey is without question one of the most nutritious choices. Its glycemic index is slightly lower than table sugar. Honey is a natural sweetener derived from the nectar of flowers. And it's a complete food comprised of carbohydrates and water. It also contains amino acids, vitamins, minerals like calcium, copper, iron, magnesium, manganese, niacin, pantothenic acid, phosphorus, potassium, riboflavin, and zinc. In addition to honey, many other bee byproducts, such as bee pollen, propolis, and royal jelly, can benefit people with allergies, skin sensitivities, and injuries. But honey... And the products that come from bees are just part of the bounty in the pollinator cornucopia. There are more than 20,000 different phytonutrients in fruits and vegetables, and each has a unique role in fighting age-related damage to our bodies. Here's an example. Antioxidants. We've all heard of antioxidants. They're capable of counteracting the damaging effects of aging by protecting healthy tissue against free radicals or oxidants. Eat your berries because cranberries, blueberries, and blackberries are ranked among the fruits that provide us with antioxidants. All of these fruits are pollinator dependent. In fact, Of the top 10 antioxidant fruits, all 10 require pollination, including blueberries, cranberries, raspberries, plums, artichokes, and several beans. 
are you interested in less pain and better performance? And I'm looking at two people who I know are. A pre-workout glass of fresh watermelon juice, 17 ounces was the quantity tested, provided relief from aches after strenuous workouts in an experiment published in the Journal of Agricultural and Food Chemistry. It seems that L-citrulline, the amino acid found in watermelon juice, may protect against pain in the muscles. Further, the amino acids in watermelon juice may increase muscle protein, which the body needs for improved athletic performance. Watermelon is bee-pollinated. And if there's one thing this presentation should do, it's bring a little more respect to watermelon. (laughs) But many foods provide an extensive range of micronutrients, vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, and other phytochemicals. The ANDI score stands for Aggregate Nutrient Density Index and highlights how dense these foods are in all of our nutrients. Pollinators support 10 of the top 10 Andy fruits. Strawberries, blackberries, plum, raspberries, blueberries, papaya, orange, cantaloupe, kiwi, and watermelon. In addition, your morning coffee is bee-pollinated in the wild, and tea and tea plants are pollinated by animals. They contain antioxidants. Lycopene. A flavonoid antioxidant is a unique phytochemical present in tomatoes. Red varieties are especially concentrated in this antioxidant. Together with carotenoids, it can protect cells and other structures in the body from harmful oxygen-free radicals. Studies have shown that lycopene prevents skin cancer and damage from UV rays, And another property of tomatoes, zeaxanthin, is another flavonoid compound in tomatoes. It helps protect eyes from age-related macular disease by filtering harmful ultraviolet rays. So, you can guess, tomatoes are bee-pollinated. In fact, they are often bumblebee-pollinated by uh, sonication, which is a buzz pollination that is used in greenhouses. So we know that vitamins fuel our bodies and help our organs and systems function. Pollinators serve up a bounty of vitamins. Vitamin A, essential for healthy eye development, a healthy heart, lungs, and kidneys, is supplied by insect-pollinated apricots, tomatoes, and cantaloupe. Vitamin B, one of the highest plant-based sources of this metabolism-supporting vitamin, is found in bananas. Now, commercial bananas have been bred to be self-pollinating, but their ancestors were pollinator-dependent, and they still are in the wild, where bananas actually feed a lot of people who don't have grocery stores. Vitamin C helps with healing and the circulatory system, oranges, kiwi, tomatoes, strawberries, and watermelon are great sources of vitamin C. Research shows that bee-pollinated red apples can help prevent spikes in blood sugar through a variety of mechanisms triggered by apple polyprofenols. And I mentioned dairy earlier. Obviously, cows are not pollinators, nor are they pollinated. But cows eat alfalfa. 
which is pollinated by the alfalfa leafcutter bee. And this is interesting. These are brought in, alfalfa leafcutter bees are brought in by these giant trucks. They are mailed in from Canada, and the trucks arrive in Idaho, and they come right out. And I have a picture of me that I didn't include of me covered with a million leafcutter bees. Very interesting uh, to experience that. I hope you all get to do that sometime. Uh, but dairy is a source of calcium, potassium, phosphorus, protein, vitamins A, D, and B12, riboflavin, and niacin, and it comes in the form of milk, cheese, yogurt, and more. So with respect to your fruits and vegetables, pay respect to your fruits and vegetables and buy organic and locally sourced. This supports farmers, pollinators, and you. Embrace the ugly. Less than perfect produce does not require as many chemicals and often has a bonus in taste. In addition, we have over 750 farmers registered in Pollinator Partnerships' Be Friendly Farming program. Look for food and wine produced under this certification. The bottom line on diet and nutrition is that pollinators bring us foods to help us not just survive, but thrive. Vital nutrients and micronutrients would be lost to us without pollinators. So let's say thank you to pollinators at breakfast and at lunch and at dinner. And I have a handout, which I think most of you have seen in the front. This will tell you a little bit more about your diet and pollinators. But let's move on to the next aspect of well-being activity. It's clear that exercise creates and maintains muscle tone, strength, reduces stress, increases circulation, and promotes sleep and overall well-being. And I'm sure we'll have some demonstrations of this kind of a plank, a 90-second plank, before we're through with this presentation. There are many forms of exercise at Pollinator Partnership We encourage hikes and walks where you can observe pollinators in action, in gardens and in wild areas everywhere. And the wildflowers that blossom in the spring on hiking trails and meadows are there courtesy of local bees, beetles, flies, and other pollinators. A recently released study from the University of Exeter in Britain shows the importance of time spent outside in nature. It stated that human well-being was advanced by a minimum of two hours of outdoor activity, preferably in nature, each week. And it was interesting. These results were across all demographics, male, female, young, old, and the two hours didn't have to be consecutive. It could be just added up. Two hours outside makes you healthier. In addition, the Pollinator Partnership encourages the planting of pollinator gardens in nearly every landscape. Over 40,000 people a month visit our website, pollinator.org, to get our free eco-regional planting guides. Gardening is a terrific physical activity. An hour of gardening burns 400 to 600 calories, and gets people outside where they breathe deeply and can appreciate the fresh air. And it's a multi-generational activity. 
I know one member of this audience, Bob Scribner, asked, not to mention his name, but that's his name, (laughs) asked his children for time with him in the garden as his Father's Day present. And it's important that these gardens are free from chemical impacts. Last week, a new climate study focused on the importance of planting trees to mitigate the effects of global warming and to increase carbon sequestration. Pollinator Partnerships research discovered for the first time the critical role of pollinator-friendly trees during corn planting, and we advocate planting flowering, nectar-producing trees everywhere. These are not the trees that produce mountains of wind-borne pollen, but rather trees like linden, maple, willow, apple, cherry, etc., that depend on animal pollinators. We conducted research at Iowa State University, the Ohio State University, and the University of Guelph in Ontario during the planting of corn. I want you to picture a bare, dusty cornfield with not much green around it, save dandelions and scruffy weeds. The researchers used sentinel hives with pollen traps to measure exactly what pollen was collected during planting. And they also analyzed the pollen for toxicity to see if it was contaminated by pesticides applied to the corn seed. In all three locations, we suspected that the pollen would come from the buffers adjacent to the fields. To every researcher's surprise, across all the plots, the pollen came from trees. Where did the bees find trees in Iowa cornfields? They traveled to the pollen-laden trees, often at a great distance. Why? Bees, like all of us, choose the path of least resistance. The flowering trees had abundant pollen, much easier to collect than the diverse and haphazard field-edge foliage. The whole point is trees matter to bees more than anyone suspected. From this research, we created our beautiful Trees for Bees poster, adopted by the American Hort and placed in nurseries across the country. Trees that provide pollen and nectar do double duty, increasing carbon sequestration to reduce the effects of global warming and providing abundant food sources for pollinators. So, get out there, burn some calories planting nectar and pollen-rich trees. You need the activity, pollinators need the food, and the earth needs to filter some of the carbon that we are all generating. And if you think nature is too hard to find, just try looking around you. Here is a beautiful photo of the San Francisco Department of Motor Vehicles. (laughs) You can see what a natural place it is. Surrounded by the beauty of standing in line, there is inspiration to be discovered. If you take a moment to observe, you'll see tucked behind the parked cars little pockets of nature. Someone, somewhere, made the decision to put pollinator plantings in the Fulton Street DMV, and I salute them. And trust me, when you plant the right plants, the bees and the butterflies show up. And that moment of tranquility at the DMV, we can get by quietly connecting, observing, and appreciating 
something that gives us a stress-free oasis of hope and meaning. And faith that if we as humans can and do the right things over and over, we will see progress and we will see the beauty and the meaning of life. And seeking nature can have huge benefits to your health. A study out of Pennsylvania published by the Journal of Science found that patients healed faster after surgery and with lower infection rates when they had a view from their hospital room of a forest, garden, or natural landscape than those who had a view of the parking lot. Seek Nature, now this is a dentist's office that has done its best to put a butterfly on the door. (laughs) Seek Nature and seek and make gardens. Get outside and be active. It's good for your well-being. And that leads us to spirit. The third component of well-being, remember when I asked you to think about what made life worth living. Try to resurrect that list from the back of your mind. We'll be talking about it soon. There is more connection between your spiritual well-being and pollinators than you might expect at first glance. We know that the honeybee has been a potent symbol of industrious activity. Honeybee colonies are inspirational in their collaboration, their collective intelligence, their willingness to sacrifice for the common good, their ingenious cooperation and communication behaviors, like the famous waggle dance used to share with the colony the location of abundant food, like those trees I mentioned. They are clear ambassadors for a commonwealth. Pollinators are featured in our great religious texts. From the Bible, there are 56 mentions of honeybees. The prophet Muhammad said, honey is the remedy for every illness. And the tradition in Rosh Hashanah is to eat apples dipped in honey in the hope of a sweet new year. Pollinators connect to our religious and spiritual heritage. From Egyptian hieroglyphics, we know that honey was a key component in burial rituals. Native American art, songs, and sacred ceremonies honor them. Especially important were native bees, moths, butterflies, They're depicted in art and pottery and celebrated not just for their crop plants, but for their medicinal plants and natural dyes, all that come from pollinated plants. The life cycle of the butterfly is a reminder of the stages of life, and it's richly evocative for artists, poets, and spiritual leaders. An Indian legend says that if anyone desires a wish to come true, they must first capture a butterfly and whisper that wish to it. Since a butterfly can make no sound, the butterfly cannot reveal the wish to anyone but the great spirit who hears and sees all. In gratitude for giving the beautiful butterfly its freedom, the great spirit grants the wish. So, according to this legend, by making a wish and giving the butterfly its freedom, the wish will be taken to the heavens and be granted. I met a Navajo woman in Washington, D.C. We are both staying at the Holiday Inn Capital South, and I have spared you a picture of that. It's a lovely place, but I think you can imagine it. We were stuck in the business center. We were trying to wait for the 
computers to work, and we got to talking. And when she found out what I worked on, she said, oh, you should see what I have around my neck. And she showed me her pollen pouch. She said, TSA doesn't really like it when I wear this, but I wear it everywhere I travel. The pouch contained pollen she gathered every year and carried in her pouch around her neck. She told me, every morning, I start the day with a grain of pollen on my tongue. I turn to each of the four directions and I give thanks for the day. Then I give thanks to Father Sky for my spirit and Mother Earth for her bounty. I start my day every day with gratitude for pollen. The ritual gave her a reminder of the meaning of life, of her place in it. Much of humanity is experiencing a particularly difficult time right now, finding clear meaning. We are facing economic disparity, intolerance, and hatred, and an uncertainty that comes with erratic and extreme weather conditions and temperatures that are changing and sea levels that are rising. The stock market is high and the unemployment rate is low, but the suicide rate in the United States is the highest it's been since World War II. We actively try to prevent dispiriting mindsets from taking root through campaigns and reminders. Here are three examples of signs of the times. This is a sign in BART, the Bay Area Rapid Transit, just above the tracks. It says, if you are struggling emotionally or thinking of suicide, call, and it gives the number. This is a series of signs I photographed in Bristol, Rhode Island. This one says, don't give up. It's part of an effort that has sprouted up. This one says, you matter. In many communities plagued by the desperation of the opioid crisis, this one says, your mistakes do not define you. It aims daily to remind people of their value and the meaning of life. This one says, you are worthy of love. And here's a simple t-shirt in a tourist shop to remind the wearer and those who see it that you are loved. Obviously, suicide is an extreme metric to measure well-being. But this is a talk about well-being. An anxiety fueled by stress, electronic communication overload, and a lack of connection is reported to be on the rise. So, what makes life worth living? I asked you that question, and now it's time to think about that. And is anybody willing to tell me one or two things on their list? Expansion of the mind. Expansion of the mind. Anything else? Purpose and a mission. Purpose and a mission. Anything else? A bigger house, a Porsche, a... <laughs> Nothing, nothing like that has come forward. Music, art, yes. Natural beauty. Natural beauty. Great. All right, I want to tell you a story that will show you how this is all connected. When we started the North American Pollinator Protection Campaign over 20 years ago, a network of over 170 organizations, we brought every stakeholder we could think of 
from scientists to government workers to corporations to farmers to NGOs to see how we could work together. We didn't leave anyone out. We're a big tent organization. We wanted all the players, even ones that would be tempted to sue one another. So we worked very carefully. Uh, We listened respectfully. We tried to include everyone's ideas, and we looked for our common ground. And we've been cooperating for two decades. The results have been amazing. Many participants have told me that the NAPSI meeting and its positive conservation programs keep them going throughout the year. We did it all with very small private grants, and eventually we got some more contributors. Around the same time, my friend, Dr. Simon Potts of the University of Reading in England, began the European Pollinator Initiative, the counterpart to NAPSI. Simon told me that he started it with 26 million euros from the European Union. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. I was in I was incredulous. I said, "How did you get that much money for pollinators?" Two reasons, he said. So, the first was the EU wanted something that would actively connect all the members in a harmonizing project. And I attended one of those harmonizing meetings, and it was inspiring to see all of these different countries trying hard to work on pollinator issues together. And we know that pollinators can unite. Remember, we got all 50 governors. So this is something that matters to everyone who eats. This is an issue for all humans. But in addition, back when he founded it in 2002, Great Britain was facing a serious suicide rise. And they conducted a survey called What Makes Life Worth Living as part of the campaign to reduce suicides. So do you know what Simon told me was number three on the list in Great Britain of what makes life worth living? Any guesses? Spring, giving back to others. Here's what it was. Birdsong. Birdsong made life worth living. And I hear, it's true, and you you don't think about it. I doubt that it would come up on many lists in the United States, but it came up there. And when you think of it, hearing the birds sing is truly a gift. And in the spring and summer, when birdsong proliferates, it brings meaning to the morning. And Rachel Carson knew the power of a silent spring. It's what she used to mobilize the United States to begin to restrict heretofore unfettered pesticide applications. Simon Potts told the EU, if you want to preserve birdsong, 
you must first preserve pollinators. Pollinators make possible the plants that provide food and nesting for songbirds, and pollinators themselves are foods for newborn chicks. In Greek, the word for butterfly is psyche. The same word in Greek means soul. Pollinator Partnership cares about butterflies, not just bees, and we're engaged in saving the iconic monarch migrations that crisscross North America. These unique and inspirational journeys of up to 3,000 miles are in jeopardy from loss of habitat and chemical assaults. Just this year, Pollinator Partnership completed a three-year project in six states to provide clean forage for the migration. We trained over 300 volunteer seed collectors, everyday folks who wanted to preserve the migration. They didn't want to lose this legacy for their children and their grandchildren. And they wanted to derive meaning and connection through and with nature. Our goal was to provide 4,788 acres of forage. I honestly was not sure we could do it. But we did. And when we finished this past May, we reported over 27,000 acres had been achieved, each with a five-year maintenance commitment. It was great for pollinators, but it was also great for those, poll- for those volunteers. Here's what one of them said. These work parties are filled with people who are passionate about restoration, native plants, and native pollinators, and this allows relationships to deepen with each other as well as to connect with our surroundings. In British Columbia, one of my staff told me about how her work affects her. Here's what her email said. For me personally, I feel a connection to the half-acre pollinator meadow that we installed, installed last fall. This is such a tangible project, being able to spend time in the meadow meadow, and observe the various native plants and pollinators that they attract. Seeing a native bumblebee forage on fragrant popcorn flower really brings so much joy. And then she followed that email with a PS email that said, the fragrant popcorn flower is thought to be extirpated from our region and hasn't been recorded in the wild since the mid-1800s. That gives you a real connection when something like that happens. But these are actions that don't make headlines. They make heartlines. No one is saying that protecting pollinators will prevent suicide. But the British study on what makes life worth living, the Pennsylvania study of improved recovery with a visual connection to nature, and the British study released last month that two hours a week in nature is essential to well-being suggest that on a deep level, we have important connections with nature and that those connections improve our sense of well-being. It can increase your well-being to give of yourself and connect to nature in whatever way you can. This is all the more important now as we concentrate on rising CO2 levels and the impacts of extreme weather. All positive environmental change going forward will have a lot to do with how we feel about dieting. 
Namely, we have to make a commitment to a goal, and day after day, we have to make decisions, some harder than others, to reach that goal. And it's going to be harder than ever with climate change because the temperatures will still rise and the effects will still be felt while we're trying our best. That's why biodiversity is so important. We'll be able to see the bees and the butterflies if we do the right things. We need to provide for pollinators by planting habitat everywhere we can, including natural areas, farms and ranches, parks, this is Central Park, homes, corporate campuses. This is the Noosa Yogurt Campus in Colorado, Fort Collins, in schools, in places of worship, in transportation rights of way, and utility corridors, and more. This is a gift that keeps on giving because it is tangible and hopeful. You will see results. If you plant it, they will come. John Muir described the Central Valley of California as a continuous bed of honey bloom, so marvelously rich, your foot would press about a hundred flowers with each step. We won't be going back to that Central Valley, but our bee-friendly farmers are including pollinators profitably in their operations, and we can include pollinator patches everywhere. Here's an example, one of many in Chicago. Its gorgeous skyline is complemented by pockets and swaths of pollinator habitat like this one on the lakefront at the Jane Addams Wildlife Habitat. What a lift it gives the spirit to see nature integrated with human enterprise. We need both a strong economy and a strong environment working together. I invite you to dive into a bee and butterfly hunt. If you don't see them where you work, play, worship, and live, do something for the quality of your life and plant for pollinators. So here are four key things we recommend from the pollinators to you to build and sustain your well-being. For your diet, enrich your diet with plenty of pollinated fruits and vegetables, and consider picking the less-than-perfect ones. Allowing ugliness into your life means you won't be supporting perfection that often comes at a cost of pesticides. And try for locally grown ones. For activity, go outside and actively plant for pollinators. Pollinator.org can tell you everything you need to know. For your spirit, feel the connection to nature that you get when you just sit and observe a bee or a butterfly foraging in a sunny garden setting. It can happen anywhere, and you will feel enriched by the experience. And finally, protect and promote pollinators. Join and support pollinator action through pollinator advocate organizations like the Pollinator Partnership or others. They're in the front lines of helping pollinators and the planet. I want to congratulate you and thank you for your interest in promoting your own well-being to live a healthy, active, and meaningful life. I hope you learned something about pollinators and about yourself. We've heard from tribal legends, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, 
earlier in the presentation, here is a final word from Buddhism. According to Buddhist nun Pema Chodron, the teachings of Buddhism are directed at people who don't have a lot of time to waste. That includes all of us, whether we're aware of it or not. This is the time to address your own well-being and to address and to heal the health of the planet as well. There is urgency to this pursuit. We at Pollinator Partnership are here to support you in your quest for well-being for you and for the planet. And we believe that bees and butterflies can lead the way for all of us. Thank you. So, Lori, that was incredibly enlightening, and we have some time for some questions. Great. And uh, I'd like to ask the first one, if I may. Sure. So I noticed outside there was a sign-up sheet, and I just wondered uh, if that's part of a program of how we can help you. Well, absolutely. That's what it's out there for. Uh, We want to connect with everyone who's interested in this issue, and we can connect on a variety of levels. We have a pollinator action team that we can give you updates on things that are happening in the pollinator world. We'll keep you abreast of what the latest developments are, but also there are opportunities to volunteer. We're always looking for seed collectors, and we're about to start a program here in California that will involve seed collection. But in addition, we're a nonprofit. I always have to have my tin cup out uh, because especially for a group that doesn't uh, put negative messages out, we feel that it's important to be positive about the future, but it's pretty hard to raise money unless you're telling a bad guy story. We believe everybody has a stake in this issue, and we hope that everyone will find a way to support us in the issue. So please sign up your email. It's a little clipboard outside, um, and you can also contact us at info at pollinator.org. So, uh, Bill Grant, my colleague, is wandering around, and if you have a question, please uh, hand him uh, that form. So, the next question is is a combination of of several related ones. What is being done in San Francisco to encourage pollinators, and particularly in Golden Gate Park and other places? Well, San Francisco, first of all, we're so lucky to live in California. Let's just celebrate that. California cares about, as I mentioned, the economy and the environment working together. And San Francisco's Department of the Environment is an outstanding example of how cities should examine every one of its own behaviors and of its citizens' behaviors to try to figure out what can be done for every aspect of the environment. And again, we don't cheerlead for pollinators just in the abstract. We want pollinators to be around for the ecosystem services, for a healthy environment. We don't want pollinators in isolation. They're part of the whole network of the ecosystem. So for the city of San Francisco, every year for Pollinator Week, they have wonderful activities. We've planted trees. We've done, uh, you know, demonstrations all over for Pollinator Week. But also for Earth Day, also for Endangered Species Day. But 
In terms of what you can get, I would look at the Department of the Environment in San Francisco. They are one of the best in the country. Well, we've heard an awful lot about Roundup in the news. Right. If you can answer this question, can you talk about uh, Roundup and its effects on pollinators and policies that might limit use of Roundup? Right. Roundup is uh, such an interesting chemical because it's been so overused. Just prophylactic application after prophylactic application, especially with Roundup-ready crops, where the farmers, instead of thinking, when I need this tool, I can use it, they've used it to excess, which often leads to uh, resistance in the chemical that you're using. So, I have to say, uh, we use Roundup for a preparation when we have to do a restoration because it's the only thing that really works. You can do hand pulling. Uh, you can do solarization. You can do a lot of things that may or may not work. Uh, they are an option. But an application of glyphosate does prepare the ground for what you're planning to do next. Having said that, you never should use it again unless it's for a spot treatment for, say, a a tree. Uh, We work a lot with utilities on rights-of-way, and we try to encourage them to have vegetation under their transmission wires. In order to do that, they have to get rid of trees, which are high and could interfere with their transmission of, of energy. So, There is a lot right now in the news about glyphosate because of some very high awards that have been given uh, for potential cancers that were a result of glyphosate. The World Health Organization has listed it as a potential carcinogen. I think it's the kind of a chemical that whether or not we legislate the use of it, we are using way too much of it. And it really is not to the benefit of the farmer or the earth or any of us to overuse these chemicals because they're a terrific tool if you need it for a specific problem. But if you use it with impunity, if you use it ubiquitously, you're going to get in trouble. And we're in trouble right now. And particularly, it's interesting in the migration of the monarch, uh, Partially, it's that there were many applications of glyphosate, but partially it's that corn was planted edge to edge in these fields when the price of corn was high enough that it justified every inch. And that was a huge mistake. Even where there were buffers around the fields, if you apply glyphosate, you've killed all of the forage for the pollinators. So it's it's a complicated issue. Um, I think it's going to be revelatory in the next year. We're going to figure this one out. But uh, I think caution is absolutely the byword for that chemical. 
So on that note, I suppose the next question is is about sustainability as well. And the question is, can you comment on the overuse or demand for bees in the almond orchards? Because when you go up on Highway 5, you notice it's a monoculture concept. And I think what we've heard is that most of the bees are trucked in. They're not living nearby, and they do their work, and then they go away. So is that a sustainable future, or is there a different way to grow almonds that that you like? (laughs) Well, that's another complicated uh, situation. We have so many acres of almonds that are being newly planted, and other crops are being taken out. Almonds are the number one export crop from the state of California, and we basically supply the entire world with almonds. And it's a very lucrative crop. And you put those almonds in and you're going to get a good return. But each orchard depends on pollination from honeybees. You do not get an almond set unless you get a bee visit. So as those acres have increased, so has the demand for bees. And I've heard beekeepers tell me we don't really have a bee problem, we have an almond problem. I've heard that. But let's put it this way. The almond is a very nutritious crop. Uh, what we need is to work on a system that is sustainable. Clearly, because about 65 to 80% of all the bees in the United States are trucked to California in February for the almond bloom. Almonds bloom very early, and there is very, it's very hard to find a pollinator that is ready to do that pollination. Now, a lot of experiments have been done with this. Blue orchard bees have been, and here's how you have to manipulate these bees. The blue orchard bee can be refrigerated and then reactivated just when you want it for February, but it hasn't worked very well. In addition, the almond industry is looking into self-pollinating almond trees. Again, not the best almond that you can produce like you can with a bee. One of the reasons that we have enough bees for almond pollination right now is because of the dedication of beekeepers who manage their hives, take care of those bees, They travel at night when they come here to keep them cool. They keep water. They keep, this is a a very difficult situation. And I don't think it is sustainable. It works right now. We're all the beneficiaries of it. But we do need to come up with a better system. Some almond farms are now keeping their own bees. They're keeping them throughout the year. And that way they do have a resource, but then they have to provide forage for those bees for the rest of the year because that February bloom is very short. So uh, I wish I could offer up a very simple answer to this. All I can offer up is I know that almonds are a great product. The economy depends on them, but so does the health of many, many people. And I think we're going to work this out, but I don't have an answer right now. So we're going to switch um, to uh, butterflies. And I think this question may be from a gardener here in the audience. If you are not along a monarch migration corridor, Mm -hmm. but perhaps adjacent, is it detrimental, underlined, 
to plant for them, so milkweed, etc. So I heard that perspective that it interferes. Is that true? I wish all these had simple answers. Uh, in actual fact, it can, absolutely. And so can planting the wrong milkweed because that can interrupt the migration. If it's a continuously blooming milkweed, they're not going to move anywhere. There's no reason. And uh, as we know, milkweeds are important because they're the one place that monarch butterflies can lay their eggs because when that caterpillar emerges, and wasn't that a neat little shot of the building of the chrysalis? Uh, they have to have that uh, Asclepius in order to live once the egg hatches. But if you do plant outside of the migration, you may be risking the migration. Now, monarch butterflies are in, in okay shape. The migration is not. The migration is what we're trying to maintain. And so I think it's worth definitely paying attention to where you are, and there are migratory maps that will help you. In California, it's it's a little less uh, concrete about where those migratory patterns really are. We know where the overwintering spots are along the coast. We're not entirely certain about where they come from is wonderful to have these things that we're still exploring. But I would say plant for other pollinators, and that's a pretty easy thing to do, and you will get, in our yard, we have western swallowtails, these beautiful yellow large butterflies that come in, uh, and we cohabitate with deer, so we have to be very careful about what we plant. Uh, but if you plant it, they will come. So as a gardener, I would pay a lot of attention to where you are and concentrate on other pollinators. So we have time for a couple more questions. So this one looks like, I know nothing about this, so I think it's a question around clarification. Okay. Why did the USDA stop the annual bee census and, and did it? Yeah, that's, that's such another good question. Um, <laughs> So, there are two annual bee censuses, sensei. Uh, one uh, was stopped and maybe resurrected. It was the one that contacted every beekeeper everywhere. And, uh, frankly, it would have been really good to keep going with that. I, I never like to see scientific data just stop. And I don't think there was a really good reason other than they were trying to save a fair amount of money. Because the other bee survey, which is run out of Bee Informed Partnership, is the one that most people have relied on for data. And it costs a lot less. And it does get sponsorship from the, from the government. And it's continuing. So, uh, this was one that I thought, we've got to figure out, are we still getting the data we need? It appears so. But I think this is another thing that we have to keep our eyes on, is these long-term studies may seem like they're kind of superfluous, and why would we need this? We won't need it until we need it. And when we need it, we may or may not have it. So I think we... It's, it's what I would call it is too bad, but not a tragedy, as long as we continue to have the project, uh, the Be Informed Partnership. 
and as long as it gets funded. And it's not a government agency, uh, but it's quite reliable data. So here's your chance to rally the troops. <laughs> Great. Early on in, in the presentation, I think you said something about uh, honeybee numbers are, are declining and wild bees under threat. So, so the question is, and you could say it again if you've already said it, please, concisely, what is being done to save bees on a, you know, on a large scale, looking at the United States of America, for example? Right. Uh, well, uh, there are a number of things, um, some of which have been going on for a long time and are still going on. And they're important. Their goals to increase habitat to 7 million acres uh, among the federal government. There is a goal to reduce the honeybee overwintering deaths to 15% which is sustainable. And as you know, we're at 38% now. Uh, and there are goals to increase the overwintering for the monarch migration in Mexico. So those are all on the Fed's side. But state by state, wonderful things are happening. I'm relying more on people of goodwill in every state. As I said, we just finished a project in six states Six states, it sounds so easy. Just get those six to work together. Wow, that was so hard. You can't imagine how states mistrust their neighbors. But we got it to happen. And now, this year, we're working on eight states. I think, I personally, it's individuals making preferences, supporting beekeepers, uh, making sure that in your own world, pesticide impacts are vanishing. Uh, making sure that the right plants are being planted. Making sure that you choose the foods that support good farming practices. Uh, it's an individual thing. We can't rely on major governments to step in at this point. Even though there are these continuing projects that I think are going to pay off Big time. So maybe the last question, a hopeful one. Did I hear you correctly say that one of the best things that everyone in this audience can do to improve the success in the lives of pollinators is to buy organic fruits and vegetables? Yes, I did say that. And, and uh, the USDA would not support what I just said. So uh, here's how I look at it. If you produce something organically, uh, you are going to need support. And it's going, this is hard work. Does anybody in this room make their living raising food? Okay, so it's really hard to do. And uh, let's just say if your child comes home with head lice or you see cockroaches in the kitchen or you find yourself with bed bugs... Do you rush to the organic solution first? <laughs> if you don't, it doesn't seem right that you would demand that every farmer do that who's making his living. So our view is work with that farmer. And we, there's a program called Integrated Pest Management, which means 
define your problem. Start with a, a very, very easy solution, which is making sure that you need to step in. And you go up a ladder of decisions to decide what you're going to do. But organics have already made that decision. Now, that's only about 3% of all agriculture in the United States. It's a growing sector. It's the fastest growing sector, but it's not going to grow unless we make that decision. Now, how many people in this room always buy organic? Always. And that's very good. That's very good. We need everybody to raise your hand, but it costs more money, and not everybody has that opportunity. So while I support that, I really want us to grow that business, and our support will grow the business, and it will reduce the chemical impact on the earth. But let's face it, everything we do, especially now facing global warming, who who do you think is hurt first by global warming? It's those insects. It's the pollinators. They can't move to another place, put on a jacket, turn the thermostat up or down. They emerge, and if those plants aren't there, there's nothing for them. They starve. So every time you turn off a light, every time you reduce the thermostat, every time you make a conscious decision to help the earth, you're helping a bigger range of species. So, uh, yeah, organics is one step, but awareness is another step. Taking time to look and learn is another step, but really reducing your carbon footprint. That's what we all need to do, and we need to do it in a hurry. We thank Lori Davies Adams for her comments here today. We also thank our audience, as well as those listening to the recording. And now, this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, commemorating more than 116 years of enlightened discussion, is adjourned.